What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we are really grateful for all of you joining us this week for yet another adventure in the Bestseller Experiment podcast. And we are eternally grateful to all of our academates who make this podcast possible mm. along with our patrons and on that note if you would like to join the bestseller academy if this next year is going to be the year that you start finish or somehow you know in, you're in the middle of that book you're stuck on and you want to get past that muddy middle this is the year to join the academy we have opened the doors and you need to get your application in by the 3rd of september we are starting on the 6th of september folks so get over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and mark should we let everyone into a little secret as to why we're so happy when we start every single week should we should we let them know what actually really goes on behind the scenes what the, the the four full starts to this it's, recording? It's, so what happens is <laughs> this all sounds very professional, thanks to our amazing editors who like who 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 cut the beginnings and the, the cock ups and the ends off. But Mark and I are always <laughs> laughing because <laughs> the technology. We're both pretty good on technology, but it's you wouldn't believe how complex it is to record a podcast with two people in two separate countries. So we're always laughing about stuff that's going wrong, which is why we're so happy. But actually, it's because we're just absolutely joyful people aren't we mark and we love being here each week i keep coming back for more so it's uh, well, I mean, exactly, i've right? either got stockholm syndrome podcast <laughs> stockholm syndrome or uh or i'm genuinely enjo- i am genuinely enjoying it i do love this uh, we the, love this. the interview we got today is just just an absolute joy <sighs> Uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful chap. So, uh, yeah, this is this is why we keep doing this, folks. It is, yeah, and absolutely. And you know what? If you want to be inspired, the next few weeks, absolute humdingers. Um, today's interview, you really want to stay for that. Um, and also, one of the things that we wanted to mention is um, there's there's so much going on right now with your book, Mister Stay. But you talked about uh, you're telling me just before the show that you're doing something with the first chapter. What's all that about? Ooh, more. More than I've got a shameless plug. More than the first chapters, you've got the first three chapters of my new book, Babes in the Wood. If you sign up to the Woodville Village Library newsletter, so if you go to witchesofwoodville.com, just sign up to the the newsletter there, which is the Woodville Village Library. You get all these free books, all sorts of free short stories, and this and that. But it's also the first place that you can read the opening of Babes in the Wood with an exclusive introduction from uh, the village librarian Araminta Cranberry. So if this, so for people listening to this thinking, why is Mark doing this? And should I be thinking of doing something like this? Let me just, let me just rewind. So the book's not out yet. October. October. So the idea is, is you, it's almost like a kind of, is it a bit like the chapter that you get at the end of the 
book that you know where they say the next novel and they and yep. i don't know if they still do that but a couple of books older books i've read recently have had that kind of like you know teaser chapter for the next book yeah, yeah, yeah. um so this is obviously something you've heard other people do and does it is is it pretty effective in terms of gaining kind of pre-orders or bills moving towards the book release uh, ask me in two months time but, <laughs> i was gonna uh, say so it's the first time you've done it yeah <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's some, it's the first three chapters because there's a whole opening sequence, you know, mm. there, where this big thing happens. There's lots of excitement and it ends on a massive cliffhanger. So I thought, you know, why be stingy and just give away a chapter? Let's get them on the hook with three. So there's yeah, all sorts well, I of think, fun and excitement with that. You know, there are people who, um, who go to Costco here in Canada and they give out these free tasters and mm. they apparently just go to Costco for the tasters. So they, they have lunch, they bring the family and there's loads of people dotted around the store. Obviously a lot changed with COVID unfortunately, cause they couldn't dish out the food. But I mean, just looking at how retail does it with getting teasers and tasters and there's something about trying before you buy. Um, and they always position these food people right by where the food actually is. And you you eat it and you walk down, oh, that's quite nice. I grab one of those. And so I'll be really interested to hear how it goes because I think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's and a lot of people are always saying, Well, how do I build an audience before I launch a book? I know yeah. it's not your first book, but if you've got a chapter of a book that you've written and you're happy with that book, it doesn't matter if it's not going to be the final chapter that is released with the book you've got something that you can use as your kind of quotes lead magnet as we like to call it mm. um, to start building that audience so that you have people ready to support the book on day one of release and that's crucial isn't it yeah it is and the other thing i've got this time which i've never had before because this is the second in the series mm. i've got i've got readers with expectations and that's um <laughs> rwe's yeah, yeah. A friend of mine, who a screenwriter and director, Steve uh, Lally, uh, dropped me a line yesterday because I, I put a thing on Twitter about it, and he said, "I have Ted Lasso levels of expectation about this." And I said, "Don't tell me that." <laughs> I know terrifying. that's the worst you know, thing to hear. <laughs> yes, yeah, but so it's a bit like when somebody builds up the movie and and everyone says how amazing it is it can never live up to your expectation. Yeah, it's that difficult yeah. second bookmark. So anyway, well. It is difficult second book, but I, you know, I had great fun writing it. Actually, if you're on NetGalley, if you're a blogger or a bookseller and you have access to NetGalley, the whole thing is up there. It's not the proofread version. It's a, it's like an arc, an advanced reading copy. So there's a couple mm-hmm. of typos, um, but yeah, the whole book is on Net, NetGalley as well. So uh, you can you can check it out on there. So yeah, it's officially we're officially in that pre-publication period where people will start having opinions. So that's yes. that's not nerve-wracking at all. Do you know what, though? I've always said this, Mark. I've always said this. Opinions, cheapest commodity in the world. Yes. Everyone's got them. Everyone's and what got other people, What other people think of our book, ultimately, is none of our business, especially if they don't like it. If, if they like it, then it's absolutely our business to know about that. But if they don't like it, there's a lot of other authors out in the world that can probably please them in some way or other. So, exactly. Yeah. I don't think so. It's, it's, it, you have to get very zen about it. I think, though, what I have discovered, though, like through the journey and obviously having done this in music in like the whole, you know, lifetime arc, it feels like in music. You do get to a point where you've done enough, you've created enough of something, enough, you've written enough stories, you've, you've created enough music that you really get beyond that totally. kind of, you just think, you know what? Oh, okay, fair enough. Move on. Taxis. Exactly. Right? And I and I think and I think it's really important for people to know that who are the other side of that, who are still mm. worried about criticism, who are still fear what, you know, 
you know, that they're going to be destroyed as an author because someone doesn't like their book. Listen really closely. You get over it eventually, yeah. but you have to have enough of them to almost eventually get bored of it and mm. that you just no longer care. And it still hurts if someone's like, especially if it's someone who you really respect and it's like mm. a, you know, major review or something, but generally you get over it and you move on and you just realize that everyone's different and let's celebrate diversity in the world. That's what yep. we're meant to do. Right. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Excellent stuff. Excellent. Well, that's very, very exciting. And, um, also I know you've been really busy with some really amazing deep dives lately as well, haven't you? Well, talking about diversity, uh, we've got uh, one where I interviewed Dr. Jen O'Ryan, who is a specialist in diversity and inclusivity. And there we answer some listener questions there. We had a, I had a absolute blast uh, with uh, a deep dive on copy editing with my copy editor, Lisa Rogers. Uh, Lisa is also copy editor for... Uh, Mike Shackle of this parish, you know, who mm-hmm. is uh, a, a, a patron and uh, best of experiment and published by Gollants. She's also copy editor for J. Abercrombie, Michael Moorback, uh, Michael Moorcock, Ian Banks, and she did work on Terry Pratchett's books wow. as well back in the day. And we talk about all kinds of stuff to do with um, uh, copy editing and the whole process of the copy edit. We demystify everything. We particularly, I know this This is something that comes up in the academy a lot. We talk about head hopping because it seems to me you go to e- any other writing blog these days and you'll have experts, air quotes, telling you head hopping is a crime punishable by exile or death. Whereas <laughs> actually... Lots of great authors, Larry McMurtry, Terry Pratchett, all kinds of people do it all the time if it's done with intent. Mm. Anyway, listen to the deep dive. Lisa is absolutely brilliant. Dr. Jenna Ryan, absolutely brilliant. So, uh, yeah, really, really, really good fun. And uh, our, our patrons get those and also our academics get those. Yeah, so and actually people out. don't know this, but on the academy, if you you get basically get a bestseller academy app on your phone which you can listen to all of the interviews and all of the deep dives with none of the fluff (laughs) straight into the good stuff folks so that's another benefit there's over 330 i think episodes now on that app, and you you can download them take them wherever you want listen to them whilst you're gardening walking working out of the gym or like I do doing the washing up. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another kind of thing that we, we throw in for the Academy, which people love. So, um, do get over to, if you want to support Patreon though, and get those, it's, um, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And speaking of Gerber Crumby, uh, another shameless plug, um, I'm going to be in conversation with Joe Abercrombie, uh, at his, the launch of his book, uh, The Wisdom of Crowds, on Friday, 17th September at Waterstones Piccadilly in that there London town. Absolutely so uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to this. Tickets are very, very limited, but uh, Joe's going to be celebrating his book. I'm going to be interviewing him, Q&A, book signing, the whole shebang at the biggest bookstore in that there UK. Uh, Absolutely so, yeah. love it, Mr. Stone. Really how fantastic. And how awesome is that, that that's kind of come full circle? Because Joe is one of the, he was one of the, Right, he was early number number t- in the top ten, wasn't he? That we interviewed early. I early think he was, was actually. He, was I think he, he was actually the first author I interviewed. 
for the podcast because you know we did a whole bunch <gasps> of Galantz Fest. Yes. And I think I, I think I did Joe first and then Joanne Harris second. That's right. Um so I think just because so, I grabbed him first. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. I well, think Joe's got is, a um, very special place in our heart because he gave us one very, of the best quotes of the yeah. podcast. And I know that a lot of people absolutely loved the interview with him. So that's going to be great. We'll have to talk a bit more about how that goes. Um, brilliant stuff. So talking of amazing authors, we have an incredible interview today with none other than Piers Torday. Mark, tell us about Piers. Uh, Piers is the award-winning author of the extraordinary The Last Wild Trilogy, which is a series for children, as well as many other wonderful books. He's also the son of Paul Torday, author of Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, and I had the great pleasure of meeting Paul when he was published at Orion, and we discussed that. But we start by talking about Piers' new book, The Wild Before, which is a prequel to The Last Wild Trilogy. Uh, the Wild Before has been picked as one of this year's biggest books by the bookseller and Waterstones, and we discuss delicate balance between getting a message across without being preachy, writing prequels, and why you don't have to be a hot 20-something with a huge Instagram following to be a debut author. Now, um, first an apology for this. The sound is a little bit gargly in places because for the first time in nearly five years, I forgot to press record on the Zoom app thingy. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's no video of you watching this on YouTube, and this is the backup. So my apologies for that. I took myself outside and gave myself a good talking to. But this is a wonderful discussion all the same. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's listen to Mark chatting with the wonderful Piers Torday. Piers Torday, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm really well. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to speak to you. And we're here to celebrate the publication of your new book, The Wild Before, which is a prequel to the last Wild series. Can, can you tell us what it's all about? So The Wild Before is a story about a little hare um, who lives in a kind of mad farm because this farm seems to have every kind of animal you can ever have in a farm and have loads of different crops. Uh, so it's not exactly super real. And uh, one night, this little hare discovers a newborn calf. Uh, there's been an unexpected snowfall. And very sadly, the calf's mother has perished in the snow. And he finds this calf just alive in the snow. And this calf is completely extraordinary because it is a pale, silvery colour, almost the same colour as the moon he finds her by. And he realises this calf is special and precious. He then reports the death of the calf to the leader of the animals, this huge bull, this black bull. And the bull says that the calf is an omen. And if she is not saved, something terrible is going to happen to them all. And the story is really about how little this tiny little hare tries to get all the animals in the farm to save this calf. And it basically turns out that even if you want to save something precious and beautiful, getting others to do it with you is much harder uh, than it seems. And mm. it's a story about friendship and it's a story about hope. And uh, it's also a story about a pandemic and extreme weather events, which seems <laughs> <laughs> a little unfortunately prescient. Uh, I did actually write the book in, uh, in my defence in 2019 before any of this was a thing. Um, and it's really a story for children about finding resilience and hope in in the face of uh, extreme climate change, which is where we're at. And I mm. hope it's also a really exciting page turner as well. 
Yes, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that that delicate balance uh, in, in a in a moment. But would it be fair to say that that the roots of this book and the last Wild series started on a holiday when you were twelve years old on a remote Scottish island? It's true. When I was uh, twelve, um, I went on a holiday with a friend, uh, totally unexpected. It was a sort of last minute getaway to this island I'd never heard of called Collinsay, and you had to drive for miles to get there. And we arrived late at night off the ferry and it was pouring with rain. It was dark. I didn't know where I was. And it was a Scottish island. So obviously the weather for the first few days of the holiday was terrible. And we were stuck in the one hotel that existed on the island at the time. And finally, the clouds cleared and we could put away the Scrabble and the Monopoly. And we'd been told this island, which is about eight miles long, it's a couple of miles wide, that one of the things you can do there uh, is to walk around the whole island in a day. In fact, I have to be honest, pretty much the only thing you could do there <laughs> was to walk around the island in a day. So, you know, I'm not sure this should happen now, but the, his parents said, off you go. I mean, there was nothing. It was pretty safe. There was nothing else on the island. So we set off with our packed lunch, you know, chocolate bourbons and hula hoops and orange juice and a map. And the first thing I remember is, even though I'd grown up in the countryside in Northumberland, I had never been anywhere that wild. You know, there were just no other buildings, no roads, no people, no pylons, you know, nothing, proper wilderness. And it really felt like to two little story-loving boys that we were about to explore a, a land that no one else had discovered before. And as we walked, these, and I swear this is true, these animals started joining us. <laughs> First of all, this cat came out of a barn, this little cat. And we said, come on, you know, you're not our pet. Go home, go home. But she just wouldn't. She followed us. She followed <laughs> us through moors. She followed us up cliffs. She followed us down to, onto a beach. And by that point, we were just like, okay, you're on the walk, fine. <laughs> and then there were all these seagulls on the beach, not unexpected on a Scottish island. And they all flew off, apart from one, who sat there looking really unhappy. And when we got closer, trying to keep the cat back, we could see why the seagull was so unhappy, that his wing was like basically broken and flapping and hanging alongside in the sand. So we're like, we've got to do something. We can't leave the seagull here you know, to, I mean, maybe we should have. I'm not saying this is best practice. I'm, this is what two little boys did. So my friend had borrowed his dad's raincoat, one of those dryer bones that have really deep pockets. And he basically picked the seagull up and put him in his pocket. And we carried on with the cat and the seagull. And then we went and have our little picnic and while we were having our picnic, a little sort of field mouse came out from under a rock. <laughs> and I was really worried the cat was going to eat the field mouse. So I put the field mouse into my pocket. And then we went on a bit further, and there was this rabbit who didn't run away from us because we were in a wilderness. They hadn't seen many people. And my friend felt that he needed to balance up the cat and the mouse by putting uh, the rabbit in his other pocket and the <laughs> seagull. So when we got back to this hotel... And it arrived in the bar. We were like, it's a seagull, a rabbit, a cat, and a field mouse. Uh, and people thought, walk into a bar. Yeah, <laughs> and walk into a bar, exactly. Uh, I can't think of the punchline to that. But, um, why the why the Pied Piper? But, um, and the seagull went to the vet, and the cat was taken to her owner, and the other animals were released to the wild. And I, it was just a fun story to tell at school. And But many years later, when I was trying to think about talking about the loss of biodiversity for children and how to engage them. I had this idea of this little boy leading a band of animals to safety in a remote wilderness. 
And, it, you know, it wasn't really until I'd written the book that I realised, I remembered where it had come from. But it actually did come from there because, as you know, so many children's writers take ideas from their childhood. Mm. What an amazing story. What I love about uh, this, the the last Wild series is you have a child at the centre of this, Kester, who cannot speak, but the animals do speak. They have a voice, which sadly they don't have in our world. But I think this idea of not having a voice is something that young readers can relate to. And, and when they do speak up, say Greta Thunberg, they get lambasted for it. So was that very much a, a, a theme in mind when you were writing? Yeah, I've always been passionate about children finding agency through the books that they read. I think children like animals and stories for lots of reasons. You know, they're cute and fluffy. But I think digging into it a bit deeper, I think it's also, you know, animals are small. They're near the ground. They're vulnerable and no one ever listens to what they say. So it's not surprising that children often um, identify with them. And that makes animals a very good vehicle for children to experience things in stories, adventure, peril, death, loss, uh, vicariously. So they can, they don't, it's not as traumatic as another child having to go through those things, but they really yeah. identify with the animal. And I, I'm all for anthropomorphism in that sense, because I think it allows uh, children to experience emotions and feelings. But I also think it allows them to really care for nature and get invested in caring for nature. And um, as you rightly said, animals don't have a voice. There's two and a half million other species on this planet that have increasingly little say in what's happening to their habitats, their food sources, their, their life. And whilst you can't literally give animals a voice, I think you can start to shape a conversation where children feel that animals should have a voice and should be represented, and that's what I'm trying to do. Wonderful stuff. Let's talk about that, that delicate balance between uh, getting a message across and because uh, your, your book, you, you, these are set in a, in a future Britain. There's a virus called the red eye. There are rising sea levels. How do you get a message across without becoming preachy? Because children, re they're the first ones to, to pick up when they're being hectored, when they're being lectured, and they will switch off. How do you keep that balance and, and keep the story engaging? I think... Uh, you're absolutely right. The last thing you want to do is lecture children or, or hector them. And also, they're pretty switched on about uh, climate change anyway. But it's uh, about telling a great story. I think once you're lost in a story and you believe and care about the characters, you don't often notice, as it were, you don't feel your big message because you're invested in the characters' dilemmas. And I also feel it's about whatever you're talking about, you know, apocalyptic climate change, the end of the world, uh, pandemics, all that stuff. As long as you have humour and warmth, it's always palatable. It doesn't feel like a heavy number. It doesn't feel like you're being hit over the head because you're lightening it. And so I think if it's a combination of keeping the pages turning and balancing the action and the sort of nail-biting uh, cliffhangers with humour and and warmth because then children feel like it's a place they want to be even if it's a dystopian world with you know no animals left you still want to make it a place you want to go you know it's not i didn't want to write the road and it's a that, which is a fine work of fiction and a great movie and i'm not you know that's for adults um but for children i think the road is too you know give them a chance they've barely set out on the road 
You don't want to make it unbelievably bleak for them. Um, <laughs> this is uh, this is a prequel to the Last World series, and it's something like has it been seven or eight years since the yeah. the, the 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 original trilogy ended? What were the challenges in coming back to that series and writing a prequel, which can be difficult at the best of times? Um, first of all, remembering what I wrote in the first right. one, uh, <laughs> because that's a weird thing. And I'm sure you know that once you, when you're writing a book, you literally, it's all you think about day and night sticking away in the back of your head. Weirdly, the second it's published, it, that just it kind of yes. evaporates <laughs> as if it had never been there. So when children write and say, when you said on page 32 uh, that so-and-so had a red hat and they don't on page seven, why is that? And I'm like, I have literally no idea. Um, so writing a prequel is was tricky because, um, so obviously I went back and reread my own books and got clear on what the story was. So I didn't want the prequel to con- contradict anything, obviously, that happens in the books to come. I wanted it to be readable by people who hadn't read the other books and therefore just could enjoy it in its own terms and then might want to read the other books. But equally, if you've read the other three books and want to enjoy the prequel, you need to have a few Easter eggs concealed where they go, oh, I know what that is. I know who that is. I know what that's setting up. I know what that's going to be because that's a great pleasure and children particularly like it. Um, but I also didn't want to repeat myself. I didn't want to write the same book again just a bit, a bit earlier. And the real dilemma I had is that the series is about a little boy stopping a pandemic over three books. So unfortunately, the prequel sets up the pandemic, but I can't, I couldn't, I can't stop it in that book. So how do you write a satisfying story which still allows the main trilogy to sort of uh, happen? But I have to say, I really enjoyed it because I did have the often what takes time when you're writing these books is creating the world, the rules, the language that I had, that was good to go. So it was like, it was, it was a bit like suddenly going through the wardrobe and you're finding a lovely shirt or a suit you haven't worn for years. And you're like, Oh, I used to love this. And you put it on, but you maybe just style it a little bit differently, different things. And that, that was what it felt like. It felt returning to a world, but I could do something a bit different with it this, this time. Wonderful. Wonderful stuff. I'd like to talk about how you became a writer because it seems to have been written in the stars because your, your mother ran a bookshop and I believe Roald Dahl was a visitor. Your, your father was a best-selling novelist and I believe he was taught by Tolkien. And it, it, it did make me think if you ever resisted it. There's a, there's a lovely Monty Python sketch where Eric Idle is fed up with his parents going going to gala luncheons and wants to work with tungsten carbide drills. Did you ever resist it or, or was it always, were you always destined to be a writer? Absolutely. I think I should have been working with tungsten carbide drills. <laughs> uh, I, I, the strange thing was, although I did grow up in a bookshop, my mum, my family moved to Northumberland um, shortly after she gave birth to me. She didn't really know anyone and quite a remote part of the world. And so she opened a bookshop partly just to get to know people. So I literally spent my early days crawling amongst children's uh, classics. So you could say I was just like I should have given in then and just accepted my fate. Um, uh, and I knew my dad wanted to write because when I was younger, I found a sort of novel in a shoebox under the bed. But I mean, lots of people have novels and shoeboxes under the bed. He was in engineering. He was in business, um, and seemed very good at it and very happy at it. And so it, it was actually a real shock when in my mid 
30s that said he wanted to take me out for um, uh, dinner because he had something important to tell me. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to be some either a health thing or like something, you know, I've been having an affair for 10 years or, you know, I'm, I'm moving to Mexico. It wasn't any of those things. It was he'd written this book. And I just was completely blown away because he hadn't mentioned it to anyone. Normally when people are writing a book, they tell everyone as a sort of way of forcing themselves to write it. Uh, so in other words, every Christmas you have an aunt saying, um, how's that book coming along? And you have to say, well, it's getting there. It's getting there. Please don't ask me that again. Um, so if he hadn't told anyone, and um, it was a total shock. And not only had he written a book, he'd sold it at, at an auction for a flabbergasting amount of money and the movie rights. And it was a Richard and Judy book club. It was sort of, he went from not just naught to 60, he went from naught to 120. Mm. Um, the book was Salmon Fishing in Yemen. And, you know, I suppose I could have had two reactions. I could have been like, because I'd spent my life in the creative industries because my dad was a businessman, I, you know, I, that was my rebellion, I guess, and I'm going to go into theatre and TV. And for a brief second, I thought, I can't believe this. I could have had a sensible job. I could have been a lawyer. I could have made some money in the city. Uh, but it didn't last very long. Uh, and actually, it just gave me this huge confidence that that impulse I'd had to write wasn't as mad as I thought it was. Maybe it did come from somewhere. You know, my mum's also a writer. My grandfather um, was a racing correspondent who wrote amazing letters that were published as the Dear Lupin books. Um, oh. And very distantly, my cousin, uh, Walter Scott was a cousin. So if you put all that together, you sort of go, <laughs> I mean, I don't think you need any of those things to write, just to be clear. You don't need to know any writers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. just in, in, in my particular case, it sort of all added up to maybe you should at least have a go. It's quite mm. reasonable to have to have a go. And uh, yeah, that was how it all happened. Well, I, I worked at Orion when Salmon Fishing in the Yemen was published, and I had the very great pleasure of meeting your father a number of times. And I remember the editor, Kirsty coming around and just the, the passion she had for this book. And we all read it and we all fell in love with it completely. And I think the, you know, the reason it, it went from to 120 miles an hour is, is because it was so beautifully written and such a, such a wonderful book that we all, you know, got behind. But your father was 60 when it was yeah. published. And I know we have a lot of listeners who, you know, might be under the impression that you need to be 25 and have a big Instagram following to get to get to be published. But uh, I, I know he want, he he had wanted to write, but he had other responsibilities thrust upon him, um, you know, through his life. But that's you don't have to be young and hot to trot to be a, a novelist, do you? You really, you really don't. And um, it, it was so inspiring to me that he managed to find this sort of second career late, late in life. And I think, firstly, writing is a fantastic career late, late in life, because if you, if you have your health and you have, you know, somewhere to live um, it, it, and you have time, that's what writing needs, it needs time. And, and actually, if you, it's wonderful to publish your first novel when you're 23 and be a hot debut and have an Instagram following. That's amazing. But the challenge if you look at it from the other end of the telescope, is how do you sustain that career over a whole life? If all you do is write books, the danger is you end up just writing books about writing books. Yes. Which there's some very good books about writing books, but you don't you don't have a life of other experience. And that's what Dad had. You know, he'd had a whole life of business, travel, a family. You know, huge range of experiences, and that's what he brought to salmon fishing. You know, he'd worked in the Middle East. Uh, 
uh, and he'd done a lot of fishing. <laughs> so uh, not in the Middle East, but uh, he he brought those things, and we wanted to after he died. Um, my brother Nick and I wanted to do something to kind of, I don't know, honor his honor his legacy, and so we were very fortunate that he, because he'd done so well with his writing, the the money that was left from he made from his writing, we set up a prize, uh, which is the Paul Torday Memorial Prize, and it was very simply uh, a prize for the best debut novel by an author sixty or or over. And the reaction we've had has just been phenomenal. We do it with the Society of Authors. We've done three now. And every one of the books is really extraordinary. Um, and I, I, when you hear the winners speak about how being published at 60 and how winning the prize has changed their life, it's incredibly moving. Um, and you see a whole new vista opening up. You know, a lot of us are living longer. And... I just think that there's a slight obsession with the publishing industry as in all the media industries with youth and stuff, which is which is also to be celebrated. I'm not I'm not anti youth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm also like there is just so much to learn from people who've who've lived who've lived a life and now have the time to reflect on that and put those thoughts on paper. And so many great authors, you know, one of the um people I knew growing up from the Northeast was Eve Robertson, the fantastic writer for adults and children. She didn't write her first book for children until she was 50. Uh, you know, Richard Adams didn't, although he'd written before, Watership Down wasn't published till he was uh, over 50. So, and then he had an extraordinary career after that. And so I, I, no one ever says, ever, ever, I'm so glad I published this book too early, too quickly when I was young and it wasn't as good as it could have been. They, they really don't. You know, what matters is the book. And if you publish it, we've had, uh, I think one of the shortlisted authors this year was uh, in their late 80s. You know, it, it, uh, I cannot stress this enough. It is never too late to publish because there are readers and your story will find its readers, regardless of how old you are. It's just not relevant. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. What's coming next from you, Piers? What's on the, on the horizon after The Wild Before? So after the while before, um, I'm working on a new book, and I can't reveal too much about it. But it's I'm moving. I'm still obsessed by nature, but the, what I, I'm slightly moving away from animals to trees. Uh, we're learning so much about these amazing organisms, and there's been some fantastic fiction like Richard Powers' The Overstory, um, and the wonderful uh, non-fiction book The Secret Life of Trees that I think have really opened our eyes to. The level we're st- we're still learning so much about trees and how they communicate uh, and how they work together uh, with animals as well, and if they're going to be vital in the fight against climate change. So I want to explore that for children, um, and I have a play coming on um, in London at Christmas, a ghost story uh, oh. called "The Child in the Snow," which is an adaptation of Elizabeth Gaskell short story uh, and it's very very scary and it's definitely not for children I can't <laughs> make that clear enough <laughs> <laughs> fantastic Piers thank you so much for speaking to us today listeners we'll put links in the show notes uh, to Piers's uh, website and and also to the Society of Authors Award as well um, thank you so much for speaking to us today and hope to best of luck with the wild before and folks at the time of recording, it's not out, but it will be by the time uh, this comes out. So grab your copy now and hope to speak to you again soon, Piers. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Take care. 
What an amazing interview. I, I tell you what, when, when Pierce started talking about that story about the, um, all of the collection of animals that he found, <laughs> it's just like, it's, it almost sounded like the, the perfect story for a children's, you know, uh, like the kid, the, the kid that basically collected the entire animal kingdom and brought them up all the time. Absolutely brilliant. You, you couldn't really make that stuff up, but, um, I really like the idea that, that Pierce said, um, that, he, you know, we subconsciously draw ideas from our childhood. That was a really beautiful way of kind of, it's something that we, we it's kind of almost unspoken, isn't it? That, that so much of our childhood influences our life and influences what we potentially write about as well. Absolutely. I've got, I mean, I've got very fond memories of going to visit family in Ireland and my uncle Luce telling me ghost stories in the pub, you know, and that, Clearly, you know, I was six years old, you know, and that mm. clearly set me on a path for weird and strange, scary stories, you know. So I'm forever grateful to him for that. So, yeah, it, it is, it, you know, and this is this is why I think writers who put themselves into books, they really put their heart and soul into it. They draw on those early influences on their life. They draw on those early events that happened to them. And uh, it's it, – and the reader – understands that there's a there's a truth there that there's a, an on a, an honesty there that you can't you can't fake mm. and what is it about us it got me thinking mark about the whole idea of history and looking back on our life what is it about childhood specifically like if we think back to kind of early childhood that that makes that nostalgia so incredibly strong and special and magical compared to say looking back to say when we were in our twenties at uni, you know uni or college or starting our first jobs or getting married. What is it about that distant nostalgia that makes it so special and such something that's so important to tap into when we're writing? I think for a lot of us, there's an innocence to that time. You know, uh, you'd go to school, you'd see your friends, you'd, you know, do your lessons. I mean, for me, I've got so many fond memories of just curling up with a book or, you know, having a kickabout or riding a bike. There's, you have no, if you're lucky, I mean, obviously not every child has this, but mm. you, you kind of, you don't have any worries in the world. Yeah. And then when you tip over into uh, adolescence, then suddenly there's exams, there's tests, there's pressures, you know, mm. whereas... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and especially as you know, I'm in my late forties now, and <laughs> life. Some someone has pressed the foot on the accelerator at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, it's Christmas again. What? Um, yeah, you know. Uh, so you do like want to cling on to those to those times and and those that those that, that age of innocence, you know. Uh, you my really kids, in- my kids are grown up as well, and I've seen. Yeah. I'm now clinging on to theirs as well. <laughs> No, totally. Do you know something I something I discovered recently when I was kind of researching about COVID and how it's changed behaviours and what things happened during COVID that that were kind of un, unexpected. Um, the sale of Pokemon cards and collectibles went through the roof. Like right. people couldn't buy Pokemon cards anywhere, and and then the the value of like the high end Pokemon cards went went skyrocketed. It was almost like Bitcoin. And the, and the really interesting thing is the reason why people said this has happened is because in times of uncertainty, so when the world's all kind of, whoa, what do we hark back to? We hark back to the days when we had stability, when things were safe 
you know, exactly as you're saying, like, you know, a childhood where we were brought up maybe in a family where um, we had a, a kind of, you know, loving a loving parents or family members or big brother or sister or somebody that kind of looked out for us. And that's why a lot of grown adults, probably grown men, I don't know what the stats were, but I'm guessing, um, went back and, and started reinvesting in some of those childhood um, collections and things because it was a way of connecting them to that stability. And it got me thinking, I wonder if that's what happens when people read books because it connects them back to a time when life that's, was. That's really normal. strange because in lockdown, I went back to reading Terry Pratchett. Who, Interesting. You know, in, my, in my teens was my happy place. But yeah. the other thing, it's just occurred to me, going back to that that time when you're a child, anything is possible. Yes. You know, Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld makes a joke that, you know, being Superman was an option when you're six years old. <laughs> Absolutely you was. Know, you can, well, of course it can be We Batman. tried to. We actually can. did try to fly, didn't we? I don't know about <laughs> yeah. you, but I would put yeah, a cape yeah. on and I would actually jump and see if it would happen, right? I, I tried using the force once. Okay? <laughs> I'm just going to confess that I did. I sort of found a quiet corner and put a tennis ball in a corner and tried to oh, use I've, it. It yeah. did, didn't work, you know, so I just want to confess that here and now. So, yeah, those... Any, anything is possible. And I think as we get older, we build these walls around ourselves. We shut certain doors. We, we close windows and shutters and everything. We think, okay, this is who we are now, which is a lovely segue to the fact that Paul Torday has shown us that's not the case because, you know, he had his book published when he was 60. It's never too late. That door is never closed permanently. That window is never shut. You know, so it's, um, yeah, you're looking at two opposite ends of the spectrum there where suddenly, Anything is possible. Yeah. Well, actually, um, I also find it really interesting that people who um, experience kind of dementia as well as they get into their old age, what are the memories? You know, we talk about, well, short-term memory, long-term memory, but it's always the long-term memories that are the most vivid, which in theory seems a reverse of what it should be because you think mm. you're likely to remember less stuff from the from from the, the, the very far past. But that's the bit that, that has really stuck. Now, I know that's got a lot to do with memory and brain and not necessarily just to do with, mm. um, you know, the nostalgia of childhood, but, but maybe in some ways our childhood memories are really kind of engraved into our minds and memories. But like you say, um, with Paul, Piers' dad, um, I, it got me thinking. It got me thinking about, you know, he, he, he published the book when he was 60. You hear a lot of stories about people who, who, you know, even get into retirement. I think it's partly linked to what we were talking about last last week where we're talking about don't don't wait until you know yeah. you're in retirement to, to start to write but even but that's no that's rubbish in, in advice for someone who's sitting there, well it's all right you say that mark i've just i've just taken retirement that doesn't help me mm. or i'm 80 and i i still my dream is to still write a book so the the thing that got me thinking about this is there are very few things that you can do in retirement that could potentially launch a new career just by mm. playing with it. I mean, most people, most careers, you've got to go and you've got to you know study. You've got to get qualifications. You've got to put in your 10,000 hours of expertise and the like. But you've been writing since you first wrote your first word. It's not like you have to learn how to write. It's about learning how to refine that writing into a, using craft to, to create an amazing story. That That's something we all have to go through the process of, you know, refining and getting better at. But... How many things are there out in the world where you could potentially become breakout success in 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 your in your kind of in the autumn of your life or in your kind of retirement years? I think it's exciting, and on top of that, it keeps your mind sharp, doesn't it? 
I mean, people, a lot of, Absolutely. I know my, a lot of my, my parents always love to do the crossword, you know, that was their thing. And they, I always said, I love that you do crosswords and they say, oh, well, it's, it's really important to keep our minds sharp. You know, it's like this idea that keeps sharpening the saw. And I think writing does that for people. It's a very healthy thing to do as you reach kind of, um, as you find the time as Pierce said to do it. I think it's so important because it also gives you a voice. Uh, there's someone in the academy, I won't name them, but I was talking to them today and they were saying you get to a certain age and you can feel invisible. You mm. feel that no one is listening to you, that, that you're over the hill, that you're kind of, oh, you've, you're from the past, what your voice doesn't. And it's such, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just not true. You know, you have so much to impart. It, as Piers said, you know, his father reached a point where he had all this experience. All this experience and if you yeah. read, yeah, if you read uh, Paul's writing, I mean, Sam Fish in the Yemen is just an absolute joy. It's got such a, an assured voice, a real gentle wit that is so insightful. And, you know, I I doubt, I, I certainly couldn't have written it in my 30s, and I doubt Paul could have written it in his 30s. It's a product of who he is at that time. So if you're feeling like you haven't got a voice, it's never too, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, it's never too late to start. Never too it's late. Never to too late. No. And, and there's never been a better time to get your voice out there because even if you don't get published by Orion, which Paul was, you know, you can still self-publish. You can still get your your words out there. Absolutely. In fact, in our in our writing group locally here, um, we have a large number of retirees. I mean, we li I live in an area which is quite heavily, it's a heavily retiree kind of population, but it's incredible chatting with them. And like you say, you know, we know the secret to good writing is write what you know. But somebody who's lived 60 years, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, even 90 years, they have so much more richness to draw from, all of the experiences that they've had in life. And the challenge is if you don't write, what happens to that? If you haven't passed on those stories, if you haven't told those stories, they get lost. So I think it's just an incredible, incredibly important thing to do to write even just to document things like a lot of people do memoirs later in life. I know that's a very popular thing to do, but memoirs can often be quite dry because they're just written like almost like a diary where there's no kind of story. If you, but we've got someone in the Academy writing a memoir. And the reason why they joined is they said, I want to make it a bestseller. I want people to read this. This is a story about my life, but I want someone to read it and be excited by it. And I want to tell it like a proper story. So, you know, it's, it's about, passing on that incredible knowledge and wisdom that you have that you've that you've you know developed over the years but it's also in some ways i kind of feel like it's almost like a duty of ours like if we haven't if we've got nobody to tell it to and and i will say that the, the biggest regret you have as somebody that's lost someone is not having a written account of all of those stories or so, anything that they've written when jen passed away the the thing that I absolutely craved, and I went around the house looking for things that she had written, because it was something about, uh, it was kind of part of her that was left for us to still enjoy and, and read. And so remember that if you write, you're giving a gift to all the people, all the future generations, and all the people you don't even know will be coming you know, after we pass, right? Amazing, absolutely amazing gift to have. I would love to have, like, can you imagine, Mark, if someone walked in today, just knocked on the door and said, Mark, we've just discovered uh, six books that your great, 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 great grandmother oh, I'd love that. 
I'd what, love that. What? Because I, the th- I mean, the thing is, I come from a, a working class uh, family as well, and there's no there, there was a kind of an oral history, but there's no written history. No one wrote this stuff down. I mean, my aunt on my mum's side of the family did write a memoir, which is great, and I learned so much from that. But what I've actually been doing recently during lockdown is is ringing up my dad every now and then and getting him to tell me one of his stories and recording it. I've been recording brilliant <laughs> with the same Zoom mic, you know, absolutely and, brilliant. Um, yeah, and I've I you start you know which is why we do these family history things where we look things up. But I I my two two of my uncles uh, took me to where my grandparents used to live, and they were telling me all kinds of stories about them, and I discovered. Because I'd been to the Imperial War Museum and saw a couple of people with the name Stay, because there aren't many of us about, and they'd been killed uh, in a in an air raid during the Second World War. A, a bomb landed on a pub. Of course, it was a pub. Bomb landed on a pub, and what I later discovered was that my grandparents were with them, and they were chatting away. Do you want one more? No, we better go home. Now, for that decision, for that one decision, if they'd stayed, they'd have perished with them. Wow, and you, and you wouldn't early. be you wouldn't be here. Yeah, all right. One extra gin and <laughs> tonic know. or pint of Guinness. Exactly. Oh, you were one, you were one Guinness away. Right? <laughs> you were one yeah. Guinness away. Isn't that amazing? Now it's funny again because we had some friends over, some family friends over the other day actually, and they were telling talking talking to us about you know genealogy and how they've been looking up the family tree and. It, I know it becomes an obsession. My dad did it, and it's, you know he, he went traveling around the world to look at gravestones. Like good excuse, right, to go on holiday. But because um, we discovered that we have, <laughs> we we my grandfather was born in Mauritius, so they had to go to Mauritius to obviously look around graveyard. Nothing wow. to do with the weather or beaches. Oh yeah, there's a whole crazy story. But <laughs> when you actually look at the family tree, it's fascinating. You see names and dates. But it's not as interesting as knowing a story about one of those people. And as so I want to say this to everyone out there who's yeah. into genealogy, thinking of doing it or has done it. It's great to build the family tree, but what to continue that, what you need to do is not just have you as a name on that on that family tree. You need to capture the stories because that is what will pass on the knowledge and tell people about. And if you if you don't want to write a memoir, then write it as a character in a novel. And make yourself that kind of character mm. based on your life or some event that happened in life or loosely based on something. And then that way you're kind of giving them an insight into family history as well. And and but more importantly, an insight into who you are as a person, as a writer, how you think, what the world was like today. That's valuable, mm. valuable um, lessons for people in the future. So, so I'm saying to everyone out there, get, if you want to do this, get to the academy. If you, if you need an excuse, if you need accountability, get to the academy and make that your mission for the next however long that you're going to write your memoirs as a story, or you're going to write a novel somehow loosely based around something that happened in your life as a way of passing it on. Yeah. You know, we were talking a few weeks ago with the Mick Finley episode about finding stuff in old newspapers. Oh, yeah. Because, um, uh, again, I, I've not really done the family history thing, but I did find one thing on live. It's a thing called London Lives. It's a website, and I just put in the name Stay. And this this is the one thing that came up, and this is from uh, 29th of May, 1811. And this is from the old Bailey. And I don't know if this is a direct descendant of mine, um, but uh, uh, there's a Thomas Stay and a Sarah Stay. And the, there was a woman called Margaret Houghton who was indicted for feloniously stealing 
a gown value five shillings, the property of Thomas Stay. And here's the, here's the statement from Sarah Stay, who says, my husband's name is Thomas Stay. He is a tailor. I lost my gown on Sunday week from behind the door. I hung it up there in my room. I told my landlady I'd lost my gown. She said a woman asked to come into the house to go to the privy. She let her in and out. On Tuesday, I saw the woman in the public house with a gown on her back. This is the gown. It is mine. And the, the, the Margaret Houghton's defence was, I was very much in liquor when it happened. <laughs> she, <laughs> very she, she much got, in liquor. I was very much in liquor when it happened. I love she it. was confined 14 days in Newgate and fined a shilling. So, you know, that's a story. Did you say that is a brilliant story? <laughs> that's brilliant. And did you say in Nudegate? Because I guess she had to give Newgate, the dress Newgate. back. Oh, okay. Newgate, uh, Newgate, New, Newgate Jail, famous cheap, jail. It's no longer joke. there. I tried um, there. But, uh, yeah, yeah, you tried. <laughs> anyway, um, that's brilliant. I love it. I was very much in liquor. I'm going to use that one in future. I was future. very much in liquor. Yes. So, so what's wrong with you, Mark? Well, yesterday I was very much in liquor. And yes. uh, today I'm, I'm suffering. Much in the liquor. <laughs> it's brilliant. Excellent stuff. Um, now, let's, let's talk a little bit. We've... Um, we're starting to this this episode is starting to run and run and we have so much to cover and um we we were going to talk a bit about social media this week but actually this week we just wanted to talk very briefly about um first drafts and because we, we're getting an experience mark aren't we in the academy where we are seeing a lot of first drafts being completed and requests for beta readers happening in the academy and we've got to say yes. how excited are we for some of the things that we are reading well, here's the thing. I've I've had a because a lot of these are on Google Drives where people can share them, what have it. I've had a look at a few, and they're really good. They're <laughs> really, really, really good. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's some extraordinary writing there. So yeah. uh, this is really exciting. So you know, people have been with us, you know, a year or so. They're coming to the end of of drafts and getting it out there, and yeah, there's some yeah. quality stuff there. One of the things that I'm learning through this process is that, um, you know. The writing is good before the book's released. It's not like the writing suddenly becomes good because you become a released author. We have got so many incredible writers in the academies and a lot of writers who've said, you know, that they, their writing has improved substantially. Um, but I want to encourage everyone who's, who's working and chipping around that first draft and doesn't believe in it. We have so many people that are telling us, oh, I don't think the first draft's any good. I think it's a bit rubbish. These are the very same people who are reading the, the, the kind of intros of their first draft and being blown away at. There is such a massive disparity between how you look at your writing as an author and the reality of how good your writing actually is. I will, I will promise this to everyone who's listening to this right now. However bad you think your writing is, it's better than you think. And it's probably a lot better than you think. So I want you to start realizing that, that, that law, that natural law that you are your worst inner critic, because we are seeing it in the academy. We're seeing the most incredible first drafts and getting goosebumps thinking what could happen to some of these novels. So I want everyone just to get get real about the fact that we are going to be our own worst critic and you've got to quieten that down occasionally and just just accept that you might be writing something actually pretty good mm. yeah agreed it's absolutely agreed. fantastic so um on that note mark if um you would like to support this podcast please pop along to 
bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to join us as patron. And if you would like to get involved in the Academy, find out what it's all about, pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. We are filling up fast. So please, please get your application in soon. And Mark, people can find us on social media in many different ways. They can indeed. We're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Bestseller Experiment on Facebook. I'll say it properly. Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Bestseller XP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, spread the word. Tell a friend. Tell your writing group. Tell a writing circle. Don't just keep it to yourself. Uh, pay it forward and all that malarkey. Or just you know, give us a subscribe, rate and review on your podcast catcher and spread the word. Brilliant. Please spread the word. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're struggling to write daily, we have proven that this is the way to really get your novel written in amongst the most incredibly busy lives that we all have. If you want to get more kind of consistent with your writing, try the 200 word challenge. It's a free challenge that's been set up at 200wordchallenge.com. Come and join the thousands of people that are already doing it who have banked millions and millions of words with the bestseller experiment. We, we, did so get, we did get we did get one little endorsement on uh, Twitter from uh, Matt, who is at Matt the Nov on Twitter, because uh, I put I put up there our two hundred words a day challenge, and Matt says a sentiment I endorse wholeheartedly. Come on, people, you can write two hundred words a day while sitting on the loo. You absolutely can, and I can prove that as well. <laughs> um, but on that note as well, just a little preview for next week. Next week, we've got a million-selling author no. who tells us that The Bestseller Experiment is one of his favourite podcasts, which is absolutely brilliant. So <laughs> thank you so much for that, but listening, because next week's episode is an absolute cracker. All right, folks. So anyway, it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark too, who is not very much in liquor. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>